Tēnā koutou no mai, haere mai, good morning and welcome to Q&A, I'm Jack Tain. Today we'll reveal how the government finally plans to regulate the vaping industry. Associate Health Minister Jenny Salesa is here live. And then a stern rebuke from the UN. I know that what's happening here is not actually a housing crisis, it's a human rights crisis. Is she right? We'll debate that this morning. And then the Overseas Investment Office is ramping up its enforcement of foreign investment laws with more prosecutions than ever before. The other extreme that we do see and we've seen recently is lawyers are intentionally trying to bypass the regime and we come down very, very hard on those lawyers. The government has just released its new plan to regulate the vaping industry. Here we go, here's what's being proposed. A ban on the sale of vaping products to those under the age of 18. A ban on advertising vaping and smokeless tobacco products. The full range of flavours can only be sold in specialist stores, so you won't be able to buy watermelon flavoured vape liquid at the corner dairy. And a ban on vaping in smoke-free areas. Vape quality regulations will be introduced, but vaping products won't be subject to excise tax. Associate Health Minister Jenny Salisa, tēnā koe, welcome to Q&A. Tēnā koe. What are you hoping to achieve with this regulation? So um, we actually strike a, a good balance with this uh, regulation. We are making sure that we're protecting our kids, uh, but at the same time ensuring that smokers who want to use uh, vaping as a quit tool uh, still have access to those uh, products. Vaping will more or less be treated the same way as smoking. Is that fair? Um, Yes, uh, that would be kind of uh, a way of, of expressing is yes, especially when you're looking at, say, smoke-free areas will also be vape-free areas. Uh, the fact that um, uh, there is actually a distinction, though, um, in terms of excise tax, right? So we tax tobacco. Uh, we're not proposing that we'll be taxing uh, vaping products. Is vaping safe? Uh, vaping, according to scientists and uh, the advice from the Ministry of Health, is 95% uh, less harmful when compared to tobacco smoking. You know that it's mainly uh, the tar and the toxins uh, from smoking, uh, you know, uh, from tobacco products that is actually the most uh, uh, in terms of having ill effects on our people. Um, but when you vape, it's actually a liquid and it doesn't have the same kind of tar and toxins out of it. That being said, those same, same scientists would point out we don't have any long-term data or evidence as to the effects of vaping over an extended period of time. Uh, that's, that's absolutely true, which is why it's really important to introduce this regulation to ensure that we regulate uh, the vaping uh, industry in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Is vaping addictive? Um, it's nicotine in the vaping products that is the addictive uh, product and uh, one of the things that we'll be regulating is the amount of uh, nicotine that goes into to vaping. We know from, especially from heavy smokers, mm. that um, when they go through and try to quit smoking, uh, they actually want a, a higher dose of, uh, of nicotine to assist them so that they can quit. And so this regulation will actually allow for reasonable levels of nicotine to be regulated. There's concern though isn't there that young people who otherwise wouldn't be smoking are taking up vaping because it tastes good and it's addictive. So why not make vaping prescription only? Why not subsidise it? 
You know, our focus here with uh, this legislation is to ensure that we focus on public health, as well as to ensure that we protect our kids mm. from addictive uh, substance, substances. We also know that around about 5,000 people uh, die from smoking-related diseases in Aotearoa. So, so this, why, not, why, not, why not make it prescription only and subsidise it? So this particular legislation will still ensure that vaping is accessible to those who actually vape. We know from uh, some of the surveys that around about close to 200,000 people vape in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Uh, and we know that vaping is successful at helping them to give up smoking. So our focus here that is public health. It doesn't answer the health. question. Yeah, well, so why, why not just make it prescription only? For people who, have, who are addicted to smoking and want to get off smoking, they can go into the doctor, they can get a prescription, subsidise it, so it's really cheap and easy for them to access. Why not have that as an option? So in terms of access, we know that those with the highest smoking rates in Aotearoa New Zealand are Māori and Pacific people, and we're wanting to ensure that they can still access this uh, particular product, which is successful in helping them to give up can, smoking. Can Māori and Pacific people not access prescriptions, it even is, when they're subsidised? When you actually uh, put through, say, you have to go and get a prescription, go and see a, a doctor, and then go to a pharmacy to uh, get a prescription, those are, are things in the way that could be a barrier. So we're wanting to ensure that vaping as a product is still as accessible to as many uh, people as possible because we want more people to give up smoking. You said about 200,000 people in New Zealand vape. How many of those were non-smokers? Uh, I cannot um, give you the exact number uh, of how many of those actually uh, smoke as well as vape at the same time, but all I know from some surveys that Ash has taken is that there are around about up to 200,000 people mm. who, smoke, uh, who vape sorry, in Aotearoa. The legislation I'm about to introduce to the House will ban most flavours. That's what you said in September of last year. You haven't banned flavours. You've just restricted where those flavours can be sold. Why didn't you ban them? One of the reasons why we took a while to ensure that we introduce a comprehensive legislation, and I'm proud that we are introducing one, um, is because we wanted to get to striking that right balance. The balance between ensuring that we ban advertising and sponsorship so that um, marketing companies don't directly access our kids or sell these products to our kids, so that uh, you know we have that uh, rate of vapors who are kids but, remain low. But what changed? After, what changed after September? In September of last year, you were looking to ban all flavours. Something changed and you haven't banned them. What, what changed? So it's actually, as I say, striking that right balance. When we heard not only from public health uh, physicians, but those who are actually vaping and using it as a quit tool, say that vapours are one of the things that actually assists them mm. to give up smoking. So, as I say, getting to that right balance is actually one of the reasons why we have a comprehensive legislation uh, at the moment for vaping. It's 15 months since you announced you'd be reviewing the laws. Why has this taken so long? It's taken about 15 months, yes, but vaping has been an issue in New Zealand since about 2008. So why has it taken you so long? Um, it has taken this long to ensure that we get a comprehensive piece of legislation. But there are lots of international models you could have compared yourself with. I mean, there's broad political consensus that we need to do something in this space. Has Winston Peters held this up? 
Uh, no, uh, what, what I can say is that uh, we actually took advice not just from the Ministry of Health, we actually listened to scientists, uh, we got uh, you know to listen to parents as well as teachers and ensuring that we have this comprehensive bill is actually what took us a little while but it's important that but we I mean, actually get the legislation right so that we don't go back into the House and uh, uh, repeal Principals it. have been tearing their hair out, the Auckland Secondary Schools Principals Association President estimated at least 30 40% of high school students uh, had tried vaping. Uh, school principals and uh, health campaigners signed an open letter to you last year complaining about the length of time it's taken you to introduce this legislation. It could be months until this actually comes into law. Again, why has it taken you this long? And again, I say, as a government, we are a government that actually has acted way faster than the last one. The last one had nine years to regulate vaping because vaping has been around since 2008. We have taken 15 months or so to introduce this legislation. It is comprehensive, and I believe that we've struck the right balance. You've said vaping is addictive. Do you ultimately want New Zealand to become vape-free? Um, you know, the healthiest option is to be uh, smoke-free and as well as that, not to vape at all. That is absolutely the healthiest That's option. That's what you aspire However, to. That is what we aspire to. However, we know that uh, for our thousands of people who smoke, uh, it is challenging to give up smoking. And so what this regulation does is it allows our smokers to still be able to access vaping so that they can go on that journey to quit smoking. But vaping is addictive. What funding and services are you providing for people who want to get off vaping? The addictive uh, ingredient in vaping is nicotine and this leg legislation actually ensures that we regulate the whole industry. Um, we don't have uh, packages at the moment uh, to ensure that people can actually go say go to the pharmacists and, and get vaping. However, uh, in, in striking the balance between ensuring that the most uh, number of people can access mm. vaping is why we got to the level yeah. that we have. However, can I also remind people that it is going to be introduced to the House tomorrow, this legislation, mm -hmm. then it goes through to select committee. That, that, just, is that doesn't answer my question. Sorry to interrupt you. What funding and services are you providing for people who are addicted to vaping but want to stop vaping? Uh, one of the things that I'm working on uh, behind the scenes at the moment um, is a smoke-free action plan. As you know, uh, smoke-free 2025 was a goal, an aspirational goal that we are still wanting to get to, but we, uh, as a government, not just us, but the governments before us, have never actually had a plan of how to get to that. This is actually one way, but ensuring that vaping is a tool that people can actually still, utilise. I'm sorry, you're still not answering my question there. There are high school students around the country who are addicted to vaping. I look at some Peter's School in Cambridge where the Director of Health says 70 students are addicted to vaping there. What services are you funding to help those people quit vaping? So at the moment we have Quitline. Um, we also, uh, through GP services, can refer young people as well as older adults to uh, to quit services. And you know those services are there already. Uh, what I am also saying is that as a government, we're working on an action plan to help us get to smoke free 2025. How, how will you control online sales? Online sales are actually still uh, legal, um, and so for those who are 18 years and older, they'll still be able to uh, to order uh, vaping products. So, online. if a 14-year-old has a Prezi card that they get for their birthday, they can go online, they can click a box that says they're 18, and they'll be able to order vaping products um, online. 
as I say, um, what we'll do with this particular legislation is if you're 18 years uh, and over, you can actually go to a specialist vape shop. You have to show that you're 18 years. Um, if, if you're a, a child, you cannot actually access uh, all the of the flavours. On the internet, um, you'd be able to. You'd have to have a credit card, um, and a so Prezi card that that many teenagers would be given for their birthdays these days effectively works like a credit card. They can go online. But the same thing is how we actually buy other things online. Okay. Um, you know, you, you actually do get asked, "Are you 18 years or older?" And uh, you know, you we're hopeful <laughs> that people will actually answer that question uh, appropriately when they are under the age of 18. One final question in another of your portfolio areas. This is with regards housing. A damning assessment from the UN Special Rapporteur this year, who says that successive governments, including this government, have failed to take bold action to address New Zealand's housing crisis. You promised transformation. The UN says we now have a human rights crisis. How do you think you personally will be judged in your electorate in South Auckland? Um, housing is absolutely one of those things that we're focused on and we know that there is a lot of need. When we came into government uh, two years ago we were faced with a housing crisis. As Minister Building and Construction we're working on building a lot more houses. It doesn't take only two years to turn all of that around. Addressing homelessness is a big issue. Our government actually uh, you know, put aside 300 million to ensure that we have a thousand extra transitional housing places. We're building way more state houses houses now. Over 3,000 state houses were built. We've stopped the sale of state houses. Um, all I can say is we have more work to do in this area, but we're, we're, walking, uh, we're working and ensuring that we have the houses for people to go into. The other thing that I'll say is if the last government had actually built at the rate we're building, 1,600 houses per year, we wouldn't have uh, a waiting list uh, of over 14,000 people for the state houses. We are going to consider the housing issue more throughout the morning on Q&A. Jenny Salesa, Tēnā Thank you for your time. Thank you, Jane. Vaping is a $200 million business in Aotearoa and growing. Next, what do vaping businesses think of the regulation that could be coming their way? Kia ora te whanau, welcome back. As we told you before the break, the government has announced its plans to regulate the vaping industry. Associate Health Minister Jenny Salesa says all sales will be banned for under 18-year-olds. Advertising and sponsorship will be prohibited as well. Jonathan Devery from the Vaping Trade Association. Tēnā koe, welcome to Q&A. Kia ora. You've Thanks been calling me. for regulation for some time. What do you make of the proposed legislation? Uh, firstly, yeah, we want to congratulate the Minister and, and her... Uh, uh, committee there for, for getting this thing through. We've been requesting it for uh, a significant amount of time now, so I think this is a great first step in uh, legitimising the industry and uh, reducing New Zealand's uh, national smoking rates. So, fantastic first step. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions I asked her. Is vaping safe? Uh, all the scientific research and studies highlight that it's at least 95% less harmful than traditional tobacco. Um, however, we VTANs as, and as an industry, uh, if, you know, we believe that if you're not smoking, you should not be vaping. Okay. And you accept that vaping is addictive? Uh, yeah, nicotine is an addictive chemical. Yes. Okay. So why not make vaping products prescription only and subsidise it? Uh, the issue with that is you're, you're creating barriers to entry. Um, you're limiting the accessibility of the product. This product you, has to be... You're creating one in, in the prescription, but you're also removing one in the subsidy. Uh, vaping products, if you are a pack-a-day smoker, you'll save a minimum of $8,000 a year moving to vaping products. Um, so the financial benefits are already there. 
Um, however, that means nothing if you know our <laughs> people can't access these mm. products. So limiting it to prescription only is introducing barriers, which is going to have a negative impact on our smoking rates. Do you have any particular concerns with the proposed legislation? Anything uh, we've missed out? We haven't had a lot of time to run through it. Um, on the face of it, um, it's very positive. Um, I think there needs to be some clarifications between generic retailers and national retailers. National retailers uh, have a head office and governance structure in place, uh, policies, procedures, compliance checks. Uh, we believe national retailers should have access to more, more than the three flavours that uh, this bill is currently uh, So proposing. you're talking about uh, supermarkets? Petrol stations. Um, petrol stations, that sort of thing. Yeah. So under the proposed legislation, they'll only be able to sell tobacco, mint and menthol flavoured. And specialist Correct. shops will have access to that full range Correct. of flavours. How do you stop young people from going online and using a Prezi card to buy vaping products? Currently, it's not that difficult to prevent this. Um, we've, and this is why we've wanted regulation. We've wanted to sit down with the minister uh, in her office. We haven't had the opportunity to do that yet. Um, Quite simply, a number of uh, companies within VTANS already have implemented a simple procedure policy where uh, for online purchases you implement R18 courier bags. So the courier can't hand over the parcel until they cite an ID. Would you support um, that nationwide? Uh, 100%. A number of companies, our company included, already have employed that tactic to prevent youth access. So why isn't that part of the legislation? Well, I think there's, there's obviously steps, other bits and pieces that the, uh, the minister and her uh, team need to go through. We would, we would love to see that. Mm -hmm. it's, it's simple to implement and obviously prevents the, the ease of access for youth. Are you happy not to advertise vaping products? Um, I'm happy that there are going to be more restrictions on it. I think um, there's been some... So there has been some dodgy tactics out there and I think that uh, tobacco companies in particular hiding behind vape brands are paying DJs, artists to be the face of their brand. Um, we don't support that at all. Um, but I think we need to have the ability to communicate the benefits of our industry and our product to the general public because if they don't know what the benefits are, why are they going to convert to this product? Should New Zealand ultimately become smoke and vape free? Uh, I <laughs> Vaping is not harm, uh, harmless. Um, it's a tool for smokers. Mm -hmm. um, yes, I mean at the end of the day, um, you know, I don't know how long that's going to take, but there shouldn't be. So, what is your business model then? If, if ultimately you want people to stop vaping, what is your business? Well, model? we want people to vape because only vape if they're currently smoking. Um, we've got a, lo a long time to get through that. But ultimately you them. want them to stop vaping as well? I think long term, if you're talking you know, 50, 100 years down the track, I think that if we've controlled the smoking, the people's addiction to smoking, mm. then obviously the need for vaping products are going to diminish. Um, and we would support that. Um, we as an industry support public health. That's why we're here. Um, yes, yeah, so I think that that's where eventually, and I think the government has, uh, sees that is a long, a long term. It's, uh, it's out of reach right now, but I think that you'll see over the, the years to come that's where the industry is going to head. Jonathan Devery from the Vaping, Vaping Trade Association of New Zealand. Tēnā koe, thanks Thank for your you. time. Before we go to the break, we've got a new segment on Q&A this year where we talk to Kiwis from all over Aotearoa about the big picture changes they think New Zealand needs. It's called the one thing, as in the one thing you think would make Aotearoa a better place to live. 
Hi, I'm Matt McLaughlin. I'm a hospitality operator in Wellington. If there's one thing I would get the government to change, uh, it would be to have a little bit of love and a cuddle for small to medium business owners. Uh, I think we feel very neglected. Uh, the minimum wage is about to, to go up. Uh, I'm all for workers getting more money, but what about the small to medium business owners uh, and, and businesses that employ them? Our margins are very tight. Uh, we're constantly seeing unforeseen circumstances, for example, the coronavirus, uh, which is going to impact the hospitality and tourist, tourism industry. Um, and I just feel that we get neglected by the government, and I'd love to see a little bit of love for us. Interesting. Let us know what you think. And maybe your idea will make next week's one thing. We'd love to hear your story ideas as well. Is there an issue in your community that we should know about? We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can send us a message on Facebook and email us at Q&A at tvnz.co.nz. Stick around for today's political panel. Liam here and Sue Maroney. But next, as the housing market ramps up again, the UN has criticised New Zealand for failing to address our affordability crisis, calling for a rent freeze and a capital gains tax. We have two quite different views on that. And then later, sensitive land sales are getting a second look with the Overseas Investment Office prosecuting more breaches of our laws where people have bypassed the regime on purpose and they've made a lot of money and New Zealand is not benefiting from that, then we will take really, really significant enforcement action. Nothing's going to happen overnight. But if a commitment is made to human rights and steps are constantly being taken, you'll see big structural change over time. That, of course, is Leilani Faha, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Right to Adequate Housing, presenting her end-of-mission statement in Porniki in Wellington this week. She described our housing affordability problem as a human rights crisis and called for bold change, a capital gains tax, rent freezes and a ban on evicting tenants who have nowhere else to go. CTU Policy Director and Economist Andrea Black and housing commentator Ashley Church. Tena Kordua, welcome to Q&A. I want to begin with that human rights line, first of all. Ashley, is the right to housing a human right? Oh, in the context of the uh, Declaration of Human Rights, it's part of uh, Article 25. It's mentioned in there, uh, the, the right to adequate housing. So in a global sense, in respect of the UN, yes, it is. The real question, though, is, is there a human rights crisis in New Zealand? Because that's the claim that she made. And I think my perspective on that is, look, if you're an individual who's, who's, who's in difficulty with housing at the moment, then clearly for you, it is absolutely a crisis. It's a problem on a one-to-one -one basis. But in a, in a, in a national sense, um, I, th I think that's a nonsense statement. And let me tell you why. If we look at the, the two things that are most important when it, re it comes to, to housing, the first is homelessness, and the second is the social housing register, the, the, which, which counts the number of people who are in, in, in need of, of uh, urgent need of housing. The uh, homelessness numbers uh, are somewhere around two to 4,000 people. I know that's a big gap, but there's some reasons why there's some difficulty counting some of those mm. people. But let's say it's 4,000. It depends on the definition of homelessness. It does depend yeah. on the definition. Uh, the social housing register has about just under 15,000 people in it. That's up from about 5,000 about uh, about two years ago, so the combined number is about 17,000. Jack, that's somewhere between 0.4 and half a percent of the population. So while for those individuals it's serious, it's not a crisis in respect of the total numbers. Andrea, I'll come to you. Do you agree with Ashley? Uh, no, and yes. Um, <laughs> yes, I agree. It's absolutely a um, human rights crisis, no question about that, because everyone should be able to have a warm, dry home without breaking the bank. In terms of whether it, it is um, an overall housing um, human rights crisis, again, I would say yes. Um, in my role, I've recently started tracking um, the rent index that Stats puts up and just 
just out of interest, compared it to CPI over the last 10 years. It soars compared to CPI. And so, so we've got really high rents. And then the other issue is quality. Stats recently put out a survey which showed that um, for, how, uh, for rental property, they're twice as likely to be cold, damp, mouldy and need um, mm. major repairs. So this kind of combination of high cost, low quality uh, rental property is absolutely a human rights crisis for the people in New Zealand. Well, let's consider those recommendations. A sure. capital gains tax, rent freezes and uh, restrictions on debt to income ratio limits for bank lending. What do you make of those? don't particularly have a view on the um, debt to income ratios, but capital gains tax. I was the independent advisor for the tax per working group. I've got body memories on the capital gains tax. The um, research and the advice we received was a bit mixed, but to be fair, it was one piece of the puzzle. It was there's a lot of merit in a capital gains tax or taxing um, gains on rental property. Its major merit is in terms of making the tax system fairer. But given the problem we have, and fully behind it being a human rights crisis, everything is needed. So we need to address how we tax uh, landlords and rental property. Personally, I think if you're looking at bringing down prices or making things more affordable, um, the approach that the Child Poverty Action Group of a tax on net equity is possibly better what, than... What a, about the rent freeze suggestion? Well, I think where we come from are places we'd like rents to go down, so a rent freeze isn't necessarily the best thing there. And we saw in Christchurch when supply increased, rents did go down and similarly did prices. Ashley, what do you think of a rent freeze? So, so with all due respect, couldn't disagree more. Um, on my, so, so firstly, let's look at, uh, at uh, rent freezes. So rent freezes have been tried on and off in various different markets around the world for about 40 years. They never work. They, they, they create perverse outcomes where basically you, you reduce supply and you've actually got a worse situation. But let's deal with the capital gains thing, because that's the big one. Um, putting aside the fact there won't be any talk of a capital gains tax for another decade, let's assume that there was some talk mm. at the table on the moment. We treat capital gains as if it's a bad thing. 60% of New Zealanders own their own home, 62% in fact, own their own home. For them, capital gains over the last 40 years has been absolutely fantastic. It's increased their wealth. We're now the fifth wealthiest nation on earth, not because of wages and salaries, but because our house but prices the, This is the up. thing, though. The people who own houses are owning more houses. Absolutely. The people who don't ha so, own houses is growing. So, so here's, so, so here's uh, the point. Here's yeah. the point. If you're going to deal with that, then the solution to it is not to bring the people who've got houses down. The solution is to get that 40%. Any of those that want to buy a house, you do everything that you can to get them into a home. That should be your solution. We should make sure that as much of our country as possible is taking advantage of capital. I've just got a really simple question for you, then. Do house prices need to come down? And house prices aren't the problem. Andrea? Um, a, f a few things there. First of all, the fact that we have soaring capital gains is the function of a broken market. So it's either inadequate supply or too much demand. And so a world where everybody gets capital gains, that can't actually happen. So absolutely prices need to come down in some form because what we've had at the moment is effectively a wealth transfer. This, these capital gains are a wealth transfer from your generation, Jack, to our generation. I do. I do. I look at this, one of the lines out of that UN report. If the current trend continues, fewer than half of Auckland households will own 
that will own their own home within 20 years. Not supported by history. History tells us, going right back to 1926, that the rate of home ownership in this country has been remarkably consistent. It's somewhere between 60 and 65%. That statistic hasn't changed, apart from a blip in the 90s. So the, the, the evidence is that that's going to continue. What we need to focus on is not assuming that capital growth is a problem, but what can we do for that 40% to get them into their own home? So that's what would you positive. do? Oh, there's a range of things. The first thing you'd do is you'd drop those ridiculous LVRs. That's a failed policy. You'd make sure that you, you made it easy for people to get a deposit together so that they could buy a house. You'd have uh, joint equity schemes with the government. Uh, you'd have rent to own schemes. You'd say to people in social housing, if you comply with certain criteria, mm. you can buy this house. But but effectively, if we're not if we're not bringing prices down, sure. we are still effectively waiting on on wages to substantially increase which before case, people can afford that's a, these That's houses. a fair question. At which case, the market at some stage will fix that on its own. It doesn't need but to it, be. What's fixed the, I mean, there could be there could be decades down so, the, down the line. I, I look right. at this. I look at the demography, the annual demography international survey. Um, New Zealand has one of the most unaffordable housing markets in the world. So uh, anything over five to one for a, for an income to um, price ratio is considered unaffordable. London's eight, um, San Francisco is eight, Auckland's nine. Jack, the, the affordability shouldn't be measured by the price, it should be measured by the serviceability because that's the important figure. And if we look at what it costs to own a, a house now in terms of the serviceability of the mortgage, that figure's actually dropped over the last 20 years. It's dropped from over 50% in the late 80s, early 90s to only 37%. What happens now. when mortgage rates go to 7%? Yeah, then the market will fix it. The market will stop going up because people won't be able to afford to do that. That's the whole point. The market will resolve this. It doesn't need governments thinking they know the answers. They, they haven't been able to fix this. The market's done it on its own. Yeah, I'm not sure that the market has really done any other than make the people who already own a house richer and make um, tenants poorer. The key thing, I think, what the government's doing on social housing is great, but like our members, for example, even people who are earning under the living wage um, cannot get into social housing because they earn too much. The key thing that I particularly liked out of the Helen Clark report was the emphasis on the government getting behind long-term affordable rentals. And I was very heartened when the Tech Kiwi Build reset came out because Minister Woods mentioned that. Because for... We're talking a lot about home ownership, but so many people, mm. is, you know, the market is not delivering um, people into into their own homes. So we need to look at people being able to have warm, dry housing that doesn't break the bank. Now, I've recently come across this concept of living rent, which is that no one should have to work for more than 12 hours and a 40-hour week to be able to afford their housing. And I, I'm, I'm really hoping that when the government is looking at long-term rentals, that they take that approach um, into consideration. Yeah. Um, are we all in agreement that nothing significant is going to change? Uh, well, it depends what you mean. It depends what you're talking well, about. Well, I mean, just just to consider the different, you know, the different promises uh, and policies of successive governments. The the, the home owning lobby is so significant in New Zealand that heading into an election, is there any likelihood that either of the two biggest parties in particular are going to introduce legislation or policies that are going to dramatically change the situation? I suspect not, but let me turn that on its head in respect to some of the things that Andrea talked about in respect of those people who are yeah. in some form of housing difficulty. I think both governments over the, 
in fact, going right back to Helen Clark's era and beyond, we've actually put, we, there's been a lot of attention in this space. This isn't just a, a recent thing. This has been something we've focused on for a long time. Over the last few, I mean, National introduced the Housing First program, which focuses on mm. uh, on homelessness, which has put a thousand people into the homes. This stuff's been going on for a long time. We should continue to focus on it because that's what a responsible uh, country does in respect of its people. Mm. But what we what we shouldn't be doing is suddenly deciding that this it's, it's a little bit like the the uh, and I'm probably going to upset a whole lot of other people but when we talk about climate emergencies. It's the same thing. We suddenly create a term, we, we signal our virtue, we actually don't change anything by doing that. The change comes from what's going on in the marketplace. Andrea? Well, I, I don't agree that lots has been going on for a long time. I was a Treasury official under the last um, national government and what I saw was really only in their last term did they take things seriously and that was as people started to become under intense stress and you got the people um, living in home, in cars, pardon me. And so what I see is this government taking it seriously and really trying to make a difference. And what was very clear in the Herald article that came out yesterday is that the problems that we have in the housing market are pretty much 100% correlated with the amount of investment that the government's put in it. And when the government stopped being involved, we started having problems. Right. Low cost that's, un housing. that's unfair for two reasons. One, because the, the reason we know there's a problem mm. is because National put the social housing register in place. That's why we knew that these people actually existed. And secondly, because most of the initiatives that we're currently following actually started yeah. in that last term of the National Government. Yeah, last okay. term of the National Government, I agree with that. All right. Well, I'm glad we can um, have <laughs> a little bit of agreement. Uh, no doubt we will continue this conversation throughout the year leading up to the election. Thanks, Ashley Jack. Church and Andrea Black, tēnā kōrua, thanks for your time. The panel's here after the break and then a bit later more foreign investors are being fined for breaching our investment rules. Why investigators are calling on you to help with their inquiries. That's next. What we're talking about here is a current National Party, nobody involved, the, the party organisation uh, not involved, and uh, it, it's, a, you know, it's a very sad set of events, and we're, you know, we're watching it closely, but it's not relating directly to us. National's Paul Goldsmith and a disinterested Shane Jones on Breakfast this week. Nothing to do with us. That's the line there from Paul Goldsmith. Let's ask the panel what they think. Sue Maroney, former Labour MP, now CEO of the National Organisation of Community Law Centres. And Liam here, Palmerston North lawyer and a former National Party electorate chair. Tēnā kōrua, welcome to Q&A and thanks for being with us this morning. I'll begin with those comments from Paul Goldsmith. Liam, is National right? Does this have nothing to do with them? Well, it has nothing to do with um, the party organisation that we know of and nothing to do with the leader. And despite what some of the um, sort of donation truthers out there say, there's nothing to suggest that um, the actual party hierarchy was involved in it. Um, Jamie Lee Ross obviously has been charged with, with it and some of the donors have been charged. That being said, you know, to have your party, um, a, a, a former um, MP of your party, being charged with an uh, election donation offence in an when election he was year. the whip, he was the whip, the well, whip. It, it, in yeah. transport spokesman, so you know, fairly senior. <laughs> you that's all, it's, it's going to stick, right? I mean, there's no way that that's not going to be a bad thing for the National Party. Do you agree, sir? Oh, look, let's be clear about this. This was a donation to the National Party. Um, that's what was happening, this, this is what has been investigated. So to pretend that it's nothing to do with the National Party I think is, is a little bit difficult for the public to swallow. Um, Jamie Lee Ross was acting in his capacity as the Chief Whip for the National Party with his involvement. The last we knew, uh, the public know about the story, is that Jamie Lee Ross is saying he was acting under instructions from his leader at the time. And then the next thing, the very next thing that happens is that the Serious Fraud Office um, 
investigates but doesn't investigate yeah. um, the, the leader of the time. So, so there's a lot of questions in between that gap about how did we get from there to there? Important to point out that the Serious Fraud Office has investigated. No one in the National Party, at, who currently in the National Party, has been charged, including mm. uh, Leader Simon Bridges. The party itself is not facing anything either. So yeah, but we don't, I, but we don't I want to litigate I think, it. Yeah. I, think, I think the public need to know <laughs> how that happened. Yeah. Right. We, ha we do have Jamie Lee Ross's word to go on on that. Personally, I don't necessarily put a lot of stock in that, to be honest. All right. I want to go from one Serious Fraud Office investigation to another. Let's talk about New Zealand first, and before we talk about the current situation, I want to play you a clip. This is Helen Clark in 2008. I've just come from a meeting with Winston Peters. It's uh, very clear to me and very clear to him that the appropriate thing is for him to stand aside from his portfolios while the Serious Fraud Office conducts its investigation. So that is Helen Clark in 2008. Uh, of course, Winston Peters stood down while the Serious Fraud Office investigated then. Important to point out a couple of differences. So the Serious Fraud Office has confirmed it is investigating the New Zealand First Foundation. Winston Peters and New Zealand First, of course, insist this investigation has nothing to do with them or the party. Um, Liam, what, what do you make of the differences between the current situation and 2008? Well, it's a pretty slim difference, really. I mean, sometimes Winston Peter says it's nothing to do with um, the party, and sometimes he says it's information that was stolen from the party. So, you know, like, it, it really depends on whether or not um, what Winston Peters you're talking to at the time, I guess. I mean, again, I think the, the, the idea is, is that the New Zealand First part, uh, Foundation is a creature of the, uh, of the New Zealand First Party. That's at the heart of the allegations. So to say that there's nothing to do with each other is just wrong. So what do you make of the difference in the way the Prime Minister of 2008 handled the situation and Jacinda Ardern is handling the situation? Well, I think that is a critical difference about who the SFO is actually investigating. They are investigating the New Zealand First Foundation and not Winston Peters himself. And so I think there is a, quite a critical difference with that. But you can see the National Party salivating over this. Um, they are very, very keen to take Winston Peters out. The problem that they've got, of course, is that they're accused of something very, very similar. So th it is different from 2008 because we didn't have the situation where um, both National and New Zealand First were effectively being accused of using the same sort of mechanism to uh, to try and undercut the, the electoral um, information. Should Winston Peters stand down? No, I don't believe he should um, at this point, but you know, that's, that's going to be a watching brief, isn't it? And I think the same is going to be true of National. Should Winston Peters stand down? I don't think so at this stage. Um, in fact, as, as a National supporter, I hope Winston Peters stays in power and that, Winston, and that Jacinda Ardern doesn't remove him. Why is that? Because it will be a weeping sore on her government all the way think? through to September. I think so. Do you honestly think people care? I think they do. I mean, I think enough people care. Right, so maybe not everybody, but enough. I uh, mean, you don't think people hear serious forward office and go, oh, that sounds like spreadsheets and boring stuff? I think what they hear is Winston Peters, donation scandal, here we go again, just like 2008, just like all the other times that Winston Peters has ruined a government. That's what they think. Well, I'm sure that's what the National Party's hoping for. But, look, I think really out there, um, New Zealand public are wanting to know mm. that they've got an electoral system in place where they can be assured that uh, political parties, when they're campaigning in an election year, are able to get across mm. what their messages are so people know what their policies are. But they want certainty that there's not going to be any funny business around um, undue influence on political parties because of the money mm. that has been donated to them. Mm. So, you know, state funding mm. 
is going to be the only thing that is going to assure the public about that. And I think we need to have a serious conversation about that. that no, none of the major parties seem particularly enthusiastic about reforming electoral law in that space at the moment. Let's have a look at Jacinda Ardern on the front cover of Time magazine. Um, no, I spy our deeds, of course, uh, is a quote from the Prime Minister in reference to the attack uh, in March of last year in Christchurch. Is this a good thing to have the Prime Minister on the front cover of Time? Oh, New Zealanders should be very excited about that because, um, you know, that's, that's a big deal. And it's gold in election year, let's be honest about that. Um, it absolutely is. But as a New Zealander, to have your Prime Minister in a really positive way for all the right reasons on the cover of Time is something that I don't think I've ever seen before. So it's something to be really I mean, proud of. I mean, critics of the Prime Minister point out that she seems to have a lot of time for international media. Is that reasonable, Liam? It doesn't bother me. It's good for the country. I think, you know, it's in the context of the anniversary of the March 15 attacks, um, after which the Prime Minister did a very good job. Um, so it's entirely warranted. I've got no issue with it at all. Um, and it's probably good uh, profile raising for the country. I want to pick up on a couple of things uh, from our interviews uh, this morning. I'll begin with housing. Sue, do you agree that neither major party is likely to take up uh, certainly those big ticket recommendations from the UN Special Rapporteur? Uh, look, I think this is a great space. Um, the capital gains uh, tax area is a great space for the Green Party to be able to step into because I think that's absolutely right. It doesn't look like... So it's not going to happen? Well, um, well, let's see, because I think that the public actually has a really strong interest in this area. And a capital gains tax is... It's, you know, we've got the UN coming in saying to us, you've got this country with all this wealth and yet you've got this... Jacinda Ardern has said under her watch a capital gains tax won't be introduced. Nothing significant from those big ticket recommendations is going to happen, is it, Liam? I don't think so. Look, the, the tax working group said that capital gains tax would make very little difference in decreasing prices and it would put rent up a little bit. So I'm not sure that it's even a good policy. But here's the thing. We built 37 houses last year, or 37 houses consented. All right, that was a record for recent times. In 1974, we built thousands more than that when the population was 3 million. Mm. Everything we've talked about today is getting at the edges of that. If we are building fewer, thousands fewer houses now than we did in the 70s, uh, the problem is going to continue to get worse. Vaping legislation, reasonable or unreasonable? Oh, it's not before time, isn't it? Because, uh, you know, finally we've actually got that, that regulation in place. It's been really frustrating to watch... Uh, the, the industry um, just advertising, saturating the advertising networks um, with their message, uh, you know, it's just, just like the old days of the Marlborough Man, except for these days it's the, it's the cool DJ. I think there's um, gen generally consensus, generally consensus that vaping is a safer alternative to smoking. But of course the cost that I think everyone agrees, uh, agrees with is that young people who otherwise wouldn't be smoking yeah. are taking up vaping. Is this legislation, if it passes, going to change that? I'm not sure that I accept that premises because I think that there was a University of Auckland report um, sort of in the last couple of weeks that said that most people who, uh, most teenagers who smoke, uh, so vape daily were already smokers and most who have tried it, um, it they, that's not but, the case. Vaping's very expensive though. Uh, sorry, smoking's very expensive. Vaping's not very expensive. And, and when vaping you can have, you know, your, your watermelon flavours and all sorts of sweet flavours, surely that's more attractive to young people. Yep, quite, quite possibly. Put it this way, look, I had a grandmother who smoking ruined her life. I watched her die from emphysema and it was terrible. I've got a sister who's 24 who was a smoker who now vapes. I know what I'm much more happier with. Mm. So I, I, I accept there has to be a balancing act there. I hope that they've got the balance right, but I'm 
I'm tentatively in favour of vaping. I get very frustrated by people talking about that we haven't got the science yet for the long-term effects. Look, um, you know, our lungs are designed to actually breathe fresh air. This is breathing on a regular basis chemicals um, into our lungs. It's not Oil rocket science. Least, yeah. Well, yeah. you know, it's, it's not rocket science to know that this is not going to end well. One last thing to finish on. Uh, we understand on Q&A that the Māori Party has confirmed their candidate for Wairiki. So this is in the seat that is currently held by Tamati Coffee. You remember that Te Urarua Flavel lost to Tamati Coffee, which then bumped the Māori Party out of, uh, out of Parliament and arguably changed the course of New Zealand history forever. So Rawiri Waititi, we understand, is standing for the Māori Party. Rawiri Waititi used to be a member of the Labour Party. Do you think the Māori Party has any chance of winning that seat back? Look, it's a critical seat, there's no doubt about that. It did um, win the current government the position that they've got at the moment. And I don't think that the Māori Party um, has got the right candidate to actually win that seat back. Tamati Coffee seems to have been doing a very, very good job. And, um, you know, he's got a very high profile, he's very personable, mm. um, people know what he stands for, and I think he'll win it again. The history of those seats is that they have been very volatile over the last few years. Turnout is low enough and the voters are canny enough that they can make a difference if they want to. So I wouldn't be bold enough to make any predictions. All right, Liam and Sue, tēnā kōrua, thanks for your time. Stay with us on Q&A. Why foreign investment deals are getting a second look, plus we have our Q&A quiz question. It's an iconic image. Labour Prime Minister Michael Joseph Savage helping a family move into the first state house. That's in 1937, yep, trying to get the couch through the door. Can you name the Wellington suburb the house was built in? And bonus points if you know the street. Tēnā koutou, welcome back. The government is cracking down on overseas investors who breach our foreign investment rules. In 2019, civil penalties against foreign investors who had broken the rules were sought in five court proceedings, compared to just one in the year before. Here's reporter Fina Owen. There was a time when Kiwis were known to be flattered, grateful that wealthy foreigners actually wanted to buy a piece of New Zealand. Thank you. It's a nation which civil aviation has brought to the threshold of the world and his wife. With better air connections, tourism, movies, the world discovered us. Under the old Overseas Investment Commission, there weren't many obstacles in the way of buying a piece of paradise. In the first seven years of the last national government, only 1.5% of all applications to buy land or assets were declined. Have you ever been to New Zealand? It is the most sensational country on the planet, in my opinion. It's beautiful. But some high-profile sales of sensitive land were attracting criticism. Foreign ownership was becoming an emotive issue with many New Zealanders. There is a great feeling in this country that we are going to be tenants. The then Prime Minister, John Key, ordered a review of the overseas investment process. I think just an exchange of land for money, I just don't think, see how that ultimately advances New Zealand's interests tremendously. In 2017, Labour campaigned on tougher rules around foreign investment. New Zealand First called for a register of foreign owners. Other countries have a register. Why wouldn't we? In October 2018, the Overseas Investment Act was amended. It prevented most foreign buyers from purchasing residential property in New Zealand. In the June to September quarter of that year, there were 1,100 residential sales to foreigners. For the same quarter last year, after the rules changed, that number had dropped to 190. Afternoon. 
Three months ago, Finance Minister David Parker announced further reforms, a national interest test that would give the government more tools to... ..decline to approve it where we think it's not in the interest of the country. As part of the reforms, the OIO is throwing everything at enforcement. Earlier this month, a Korean doctor who bought a Helensville property was convicted and fined after lying to investigators. And this last week, a group of Auckland-based foreign investors who failed to seek consent from the OIO have been forced to sell their land at Lake Pukaki and abandon their dream of building a subdivision and a wedding chapel. Vanessa Horn is the group manager for the Overseas Investment Office and she told me how her office first found out about that Lake Pukaki case. A really, really interesting backstory to how we discovered uh, this um, issue. Essentially, a, a Queenstown lawyer rang us up and uh, asked us for advice about another piece of land. And one of our investigators thought, mm, something doesn't feel quite right here, and followed that company chain um, through to some other purchases, which is the land in Twizel that we're now talking about. I'm interested in the process itself. Yep. When an application comes through, is it difficult to determine whether or not land is sensitive? Um, I, I guess the overseas investment rules do set out a, a very uh, clear framework. What we do understand is that some uh, legal advisors do struggle with uh, some of the complexity around that work and we spend a lot of time with the lawyers to try to explain how the regime works in practice. But are there some cases where people are getting bad legal advice? Most, most definitely. In um, the situation at Lake Pukaki, totally inadvertent um, matter from their lawyers, didn't quite understand the fact that the, uh, essentially a partnership was being developed between an overseas person and a New Zealand person that tipped them over the edge. So that, that's quite usual, um, that lawyers aren't quite uh, looking at the intricacies of some of those business arrangements. The other extreme that we do see and we've seen recently is lawyers uh, intentionally trying to bypass the regime and we come down very, very hard on those lawyers. How common is that? Very, very uncommon, thank goodness. Um, most of our work is, is where there's been confusion or um, a misunderstanding or uh, investors haven't quite disclosed all the right information to their lawyers up front so they can get the right advice. The government has pledged to plant one billion trees by 2028. Do you have any concerns that in fast-tracking applications for land that will be used for forestry, some compliance issues may be overlooked? So you're talking about the uh, the 2018 changes that uh, set up a fast track pathway for forestry. Um, it's, I think it's fair to say that's still new work for the office, but we do have a dedicated monitoring team who look at every single consent condition that comes through the office and are monitoring exactly what's going on in those sites. If something isn't um, up to our standard or isn't delivering what they have promised to deliver to New Zealand, then that's when we will take action. So fast tracking doesn't mean a lack of scrutiny? No, not at all. What it does mean is that's a, a slightly more streamlined test for those forestry um, investors, so they don't have to to go through all the types of uh, conditions and, and provide a great deal of benefits to New Zealand. That's in contrast exactly to the Twizel property, which if they had come through the office, we would have really required them to deliver something really substantial for New Zealand. Can you tell us a little bit about your powers and authorities? What if a foreign buyer, say, buys some sensitive land in New Zealand and makes all sorts of promises so yep. that the sale can go through around access, say, or, or yep. protections of land, and then they fail to meet those promises? What can you do and what process do you follow? 
Yeah, so um, let's start off with the powers for starters. At the moment, um, we can uh, send them a warning letter, we can um, publicly publish that warning information, we can require them to dispose of those assets, we can fine them, you know, sort of like a penalty, and actually we can also recover quantifiable gains. So if they've made a considerable amount of money out of that land, essentially, you know, unlawfully, um, we can actually go to the High Court and ask for an order for that penalty and those quantifiable gains to be returned to the Crown. They don't come to us, they go into the Crown account. How significant does the breach have to be before you can take that land back? Um, so, so we have a sort of a, a compliance and enforcement policy that requires us as a good Crown um, agent to look at really what the the public um, value is in us taking any enforcement action. So that's really, really important because we have to be proportionate. We don't want to be a regulator that's out there, um, you know, requiring everybody to dispose of their land if it was just a minor breach or completely inadvertently, um, or they haven't made a lot of money. Um, but the other thing is if that it's the other situation where people have bypassed the regime on purpose and they've made a lot of money and New Zealand is not benefiting from that, then we will take really, really significant enforcement action. Why are you stepping up your enforcement action? Um, so in about 2016, an enforcement team was actually established within the Overseas mm. Investment Office, and two well, years why ago, why well, it, it, um, I think the office was a really, really small function, and as um, the government of, of the time realised that it was such an important role that uh, you know, the New Zealand public was looking to us to perform, they encouraged us to get more resources. That's continued with this government. Um, in 2018, we actually received. Crown funding for the first time for our enforcement activity. That means we've got 10 staff now who are dedicated to enforcement work. There's quite a difference though. To, to not have funding for this enforcement work before 2018, do you think that points to differences in priorities between the last two governments? Yeah, I, I, I don't I don't think it goes to priorities. I think it goes to the sort of the dawning of realisation how important New Zealanders do treat our land and business assets. Mm. And when you're looking at the overseas investment rules, I think it's really, really important to find that balance. You know, New Zealand's always needed investment, but it needs to be the right type of investment by good people. Do you have sufficient resources? Yeah, I think um, I think at, at the moment, I think I can say that we do. I've got a great team of 45 people. Mm. Um, we work really, really, really hard with people around the country. We work a lot with lawyers. Um, yeah, there's always more that we, we, can, we can do, but, um, yeah, I think we've got a great team. But it's interesting to consider the ways in which you discover when purchasers are breaching their agreements, take yeah. Lake Pukaki, for example. Yes. What role does the public play in this? Yeah, a really, really important role. So um, on our website, so we're part of Land Information New Zealand, so all the information about the Overseas Investment Office is um, part of Land Information's website. We've essentially got a report a breach button on our website. Uh, last year, 27 um, members of the public used that button to send us an email to say, hey, we think something's not quite right here. Can you go in and have an investigation? And I think half of those public um, notifications have actually resulted in an investigation 
investigation by us. Do you need the public to do more? Uh, I think we're always interested to hear what's going on. We get um, a lot of uh, interesting pieces of information actually directly from the media as well, uh, and uh, also from lawyers will let us know if something doesn't feel quite right, or um, increasingly neighbours of um, you know significant bits of land will let us know if they don't feel that a purchase has been done properly. Is there a danger that that might promote some xenophobic attitudes in the in the broader public? I, I I don't think so. We've got a we've got a really really careful balance um, as part of our role under those rules. Uh, I think the public expects us to not only look at those applications, you know, for overseas investment in the country um, properly, but also to hold people to account. If they if they're trying to bypass the regime, New Zealanders are missing out on something. And if they've come through the regime, we've got to make sure that they do do what they said they were going to do. Vanessa Horn, Tina Koi, thanks for your time. Okay, thank you. Before we go, the answer to our political quiz. That first state house was at number 12, Fife Lane in Miramar in Porneke in Wellington. The house is still there. In fact, here's Jacinda Ardern visiting to mark the 80th anniversary of its construction. Kuomotu, that's us for this week. Thanks for watching. And nā mihi kia koutou i ngā karere. Thanks for your contributions. We'll see you next Sunday morning at 9 o'clock. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.